0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Houndsom.
0: And I'm Megan Lee.
1: Tonight we'll be discussing the creative mechanics of carrying on a successful TV series in audio ebook format. So, how do you adapt a popular narrative that has worked so well in one format into an entirely different medium? Well, to answer that question, we have Madeline Ashby here with us tonight. Madeline, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, my name is Madeline Ashby, and I am one of the writers on Orphan Black, the next chapter out now from Serial Box Publishing. And uh, I'm also a science fiction writer and futurist.
1: Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming along um, and talking to us about one of our favourite shows. um, Because (laughs) Orphan Black, it stands out as one of the very rare shows that features a cast of multiple and complex female characters while subverting and flipping a lot of the tropes we're really used to seeing on TV. So how do you start adapting a narrative that's worked so well in one format into something that is so completely different? When we think about television and we think about audio um we're kind of so used to images and sensation how does how i mean what are what are the kind of ground rules how do you even approach that i think it seems very complex to me
2: I feel as though, like, that's a, I almost think that that's a question uh, for, for the lead of our writer's room, who is Malka Older, who you, uh, you may know from the Sentinel Cycle, from uh, Infomocracy yes, yeah. and, and, and those, and, and from just being an awesome person on Twitter generally, and, uh, and if you don't know her, you know her brother, uh, Daniel Jose Older, and, and so I feel as though She was the one who sort of put together the pitch. She's the one who who sort of put together, like, here's this format. Serial Box, for those who don't know, is a podcasting fiction format that allows you to either read um, sort of serialized fiction uh, of any genre, really, and also listen to it uh so if you are more of a reader or if you're a faster reader you can sort of scroll through at your at at your own speed but if you prefer audio fiction or audio-based fiction or you prefer to listen to things rather than read them you can drop what you've been doing you can drop where you're reading and then pick up immediately on audio so if you stop at if you stop mid-sentence or mid-paragraph, it'll pick up where you left off. And and so uh, what we're fortunate enough to do with Orphan Black is have the star of the show, uh, Tatiana Maslany, reprising all of her roles, reading our work as we sort of continue the series on and, and we get her – we get her voice. So I'm not sure that anybody is actually really reading the text. I think everybody is pretty much listening to her perform it.
0: So does that mean, like, do you think about that in terms of like writing for audio or do you still think about it as writing for prose narrative first?
2: It's a little bit of both, but I, once we knew that we had her, once we knew that for certain that she would be performing it, my sense of, of the dialogue shifted a little bit because I could then hear her in my head performing the different roles. I knew that she would be reprising roles that she'd played before and I knew what she would sound like. As a fan of the show, I knew what she would sound like as she performed them. So I could hear in my head her saying the words before she said them, or I could hear an approximation. I would sort of, you know, play her out in my head you know, the way that she would, the way that she would sound with certain voices. And, um, and so that gave me a better flavor or a better sense of what it would mean for her to be performing the roles. And then I started thinking about like, you know, is this a long paragraph for someone to read? Is this a short paragraph for someone to read? What does this sound like when I read it aloud? And, and stuff like that. So those, there were those considerations.
0: I mean, for me, I, I love Orphan Black and I, i think it's amazing how you can watch this one actress just completely become totally different characters and you completely believe it as well and you know i, I just wonder how you manage to get that across when you know, say she she's reading it, or or even if if say the people did actually read the text. You know, how do you manage to get that across quite as well as she did in you know when she's acting visually? You have all those other cues. You have the little ticks that um you know she displays in a physical sense. You know, how do you get that across just with the dialogue?
2: Um, I really spent a long time with the voices of each character i made sure that allison sounded like allison like i i spent time with each character sort of think like playing out what they would sound like. One of the things that I do as a writer is that I, I'm a very dialogue heavy writer to begin with and uh, and so that's that's a thing that I enjoy doing um, for me I often hear character voices before I sort of see the built environment around them or see what the setting is like uh, or even what they look like I know kind of what they sound like in my head and as a child I would I would tell myself stories before I was a writer I would sort of tell myself stories and I would make up funny voices for all of my characters and so i knew kind of what they sounded like and i would rehearse them i would before i could write things down before i had access to to a computer or to the ability to type really i would rehearse things out loud and i had done like a lot of summer stock and community theater as a as a kid and so the idea of what people sound like Has always been really important to me and and so in the text itself for this in the text itself you can provide some level of of direction you can sort of using you know a a a ration of of adverbs you can sort of describe whether or not someone said something crisply or whether or not someone said something you know whether or not someone bites out something or whispers something or mutters something or what have you like you can you can use setisms a little bit to sort of get the action in and get the direction in um so there's so there there are sort of like little tricks right uh that you can use as stage direction but otherwise it was just sort of a matter of of really thinking about like well what would, would would she really say this Does she really sound like this? You know, is this a character who exposits at length? Probably not. You know, if it's Sarah, then it's not. You know, Sarah communicates in in curse words and short sentences and so on. Allison communicates in, you know, very uh, high-flown, optimistic, everything from her sounds like a, a PR statement, you know, stuff like that. Cosima exposits at, at length, right? She's always explaining something science-y. So in character, the women have like a, a different, each have their own style of communication and style of speech. And and from there, it was... It, I just sort of tried to confine myself to those rules.
1: Um, was there anything particularly challenging about um, bringing this over to audio? Um, because it it sounds like, um, you know, that actually you found your way through any kind of the more obvious difficulties uh, when you're kind of looking at the differences between something visual and something audio. Was there anything that you found exceptionally challenging?
2: Yeah, well... Certainly, there was a different understanding of who the audience would be, and what the audience would be sort of willing to put up with. Like our chapters are longer than most formal book chapters, for example. Like we have some chapters that are like ten thousand words uh, or above. Sometimes they're more. And the standard, you know, short story length is between you know three and five thousand words. The standard novelette length is up to seven thousand words. And once you get into ten thousand, like you're really you're really going into something quite a bit longer and so you really have to be judicious in terms of how long a scene is um how long a speech is how long a scene of dialogue is you when you have that much space to play in you have to make sure that that everything is balanced and paced correctly and and that you're you're not in any one place for too long or too short and and that everything sort of meets up And joins up in an in an even way. Like that was one of my concerns. And uh, I write in Scrivener. I compose in Scrivener. And Scrivener is really good at sort of showing you the length of each scene and showing you how long you've dwelt on something. And and that's what I've always found it really useful for. When I'm plotting out a novel, I do it the same way. Like most of the chapters have to look like each other in terms of length. Otherwise, I start thinking about well, okay, where well, where can we break this up? Is there a natural breaking point somewhere here? And I I brought the same approach to this project.
1: Um so conversely, is there something that you feel you could address in a much more interesting way in the audio format as opposed to television?
2: Let's see. Um well, certainly, I mean, there aren't budgetary constraints in the same way, right? I mean, when, you, when you're when you talking about television, you're talking about a set you're, or a series of sets. You're talking about location shooting. You're talking about, you know, can we get this location? Can we get these props? Can we get uh, these actors? Can we get um, – you know, this amazing, you know, can we get this big explosion that costs X amount of dollars to produce and can we get bonded for this insurance, et cetera, et cetera. In in audio fiction you don't have those concerns. You know, the budget is what your brain says it is. You know, you're you're limited only by your imagination and by continuity between the rest of things. So so we got to do things that would have probably been somewhat expensive to produce uh you know for tv but we got to just sort of run with it because you know no one's making the prop no one's getting the insurance no one is having to to get the location we don't have to worry about whether or not the weather is same is is the same thing day to day for shooting outside like there were the the considerations in terms of of those things uh was was pretty lit- liberating in a way that it wouldn't be for a, for a tv crew
0: Do you find yourself deliberately choosing to put things in there that you just know that they could never have done in TV? Like, oh, we can throw in so many more sci-fi, cool technology things that they couldn't have afforded or something like that.
2: Well, there were definitely considerations in terms of things like um, I live in Toronto and the show is set in Toronto and the story is set in Toronto. So I could include Toronto locations that I knew might be a little bit more difficult to get. Um, and I could include sort of Toronto specific things that the show itself might not have dwelt on. Like there's a whole in my introductory in my chapter which is chapter five uh there's a whole long digression about toronto raccoons which everyone who lives in this city understands to be a a facet of living here but people who don't live in toronto might not understand it and so i got to go on this long this long digression about toronto raccoons that i doubt the show would ever really explore in any depth and and stuff also because you know then you'd have to get a raccoon wrangler and those are also expensive
0: I mean to go on to my own digression. I I really love it when I'm watching things or reading books that they feature sort of a local place that I know really well. Which I mean, I'm from Perth, Western Australia, which very rarely features in anything <laughs> I mean, remotely interesting. But it is it's really fun when you write about something that is local to you, and then you're reading that, and you can go oh, because you know now I live in Oxford, and there is a lot more that is based in Oxford, and you know I can. And be like, oh, I know that street. And oh, I've been there. So I can imagine that's quite fun to be able to write that into the, the narrative.
2: Yeah, no, it was it was hugely, hugely fun. It was, you know, uh um it was a it was a big love letter to to where I live in a lot of ways. So I was really happy about that.
1: When something has been such a a popular, kind of huge hit and is developed a cult following, how do you approach dealing with any kind of, you know, high audience expectations um, without being afraid to, you know, try something a bit different?
2: Well, there are two two answers to that question. One was that I was a fan of the show and I trusted my own instincts in terms of being a fan of the show. I knew why I liked the show and I knew I had a a sense that what I enjoyed about the show was probably what other people enjoyed about the show. As I was writing it, I did go back and read reviews and recaps of certain episodes and especially the, f- the finale and sort of got uh, you know a sense of what people had been watching it for like when you read those sort of series ending uh, pieces or think pieces about the show you get a sense of sort of what other people were responding to at the same time as you were and and what they got out of it what was important to them and so I did sort of do research at, at that level and sort of see what you know checking my own assumptions against against other people's uh reviews um otherwise i had done prior to this years ago in another life when i was uh more of an academic than i am now um i had written my first master's degree on uh fan fiction japanese anime and and cyborg theory and so i had done all my reading of Henry Jenkins and Janice Radway and, and all those theorists about fan culture. And so I had really like, I came to it with, with what I think is, was a healthy dose dose of respect for both, you know, the tradition of fan fiction and the tradition of carrying on, carrying on narrative for people and also understanding that in the intervening years, like probably people have their own headcanon of what was happening. And I would really just be adding like one story to this, that, that I had the privilege of, of working with a, a whole lot of other writers on and having the blessing of the, of, of, the, the creators and having uh, Tatiana on board and and so I I sort of thought of it thought of it that way and and tried to be you know as respectful as 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 I could be.
0: The theme of identity is incredibly strong throughout *Orphan Black*, and it's also touched upon in your novel *Company Town*. What is it about science fiction, particularly? sci-fi that explores gender alongside identity as a whole that makes for such powerful and compelling explorations of this subject?
2: Well, I think uh, science fiction, going back to the roots of it, going back to, to Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, is about, you know, the, the, the beginner of all of this. You know, science fiction, Frankenstein is about, you know, who gets to be a human being and what gets to be a human being and what gets to be a man. And now we sort of have questions about what gender actually is. And science fiction is, I think, the, one of the ideal genres for, for exploring that. I think that most fiction is about, you know, what it means to be a human being. But science fiction takes that extra leap and says, well, how, what are the borders of humanity? And what are the borders of the things that make us human? And gender is one of those things. And so that's always been a fascination of mine. And um, so I think that that a story like Orphan Black was a good way to – has always been good at sort of looking at the limitations of the human, especially in a story where – where these clones have their, you know, actually have their, their genome patented and copyrighted. They don't have, they don't actually have rights to their own bodies, which is, for me, such a story about women in in general um, not having rights to, to who and what they are and not necessarily being recognized as, as people, um, depending on where and when you are in, in history and in space. And, and so in Company Town, I, I really tried to also explore that from the perspective of somebody who is the only unaugmented uh person on a on an oil rig that is that is full of augmented people she's uh the protagonist of that novel is the only person who who doesn't have really a whole lot of augmentation uh and and sort of is the last baseline human on on the rig
0: is that what you would be the uh the last unaugmented human.
2: It's, I mean, it's possible. I would probably. I, I already have certain augmentations. I already wear glasses. I already take medication. There are, there are things that are already sort of, you know, that I already use as as prostheses, right? Um, in a certain way, from from a sort of Donna Haraway cyborg theory perspective, those are all prosthetic devices that that alter how I behave, uh, as a human being and, and who I am in, in relationship to other people. Um, so there's, so there's, you know, I already use certain things like that, depending on how you want to read post-humanity or augmented bodies or, or what have you. Um, I think that I would be deeply skeptical of, of augmentation. I mean, today, uh, it was either today or yesterday, the news came out that, uh, Alphabet, which is Google's uh, sort of uh, larger company, the, the larger company that owns mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Google and facets of Google, like Sidewalk and, and whatever, uh, and Waymo, had acquired Fitbit. Alphabet has acquired Fitbit, which means that Google has Fitbit, which means that Google has, uh, for for a lot of people or a growing number of people, access to the things that determine their access to health insurance, private health insurance within the United States. And so Google now has access to that data and I've never owned a Fitbit for exactly that reason. Um, I knew that eventually uh, you know, Fitbit data was going to get fed into health insurance or fed into actuarial science in some way. And you know whether it was a Google or a Microsoft or a or you know a Facebook or whomever, um, one of these big stacks was going to kind of buy it and and or gain access to it in some way, and that would not be good for the people wearing those things. And so I've always steered away from things like that. I don't have uh, a smart watch. I don't ha- I don't wear fitness devices. I don't uh, have I don't have an in home personal assistant um, things like that. I've, it, it took me years to get a mobile phone. Uh, it took me years to get a smartphone. I was way behind a lot of other people in that. And, and it was in part because I could kind of see where, you know, how it would be leveraged against people. And so, yeah, I I would probably be one of those curmudgeonly, uh, people who, who just didn't want to participate or who didn't, who didn't see everybody else doing it as a reason to do it, I guess.
0: I find that interesting. I mean, it's probably a stereotype to assume that people who are interested in science fiction or sci-fi writers are into tech and like into the new changing world but, uh, you know, it's quite interesting to, to hear from someone who, who writes in sci-fi, but might not be, you know, the first adopter of new tech.
2: Well, I think that there's actually kind of a tradition of that, I think. I mean, um, I think famously, like William Gibson, William Gibson composed Neuromancer on a typewriter. Uh, he, he proposed the idea of cyberspace from, uh, from a paper and ink medium and and what he said in interviews is that he's glad that he did it that way because if he had if he had written it on a word processor it would have destroyed the magic of of imagining cyberspace so he wanted to sort of be separate from the thing that he was creating you know in a weird way so that he could still imagine the possibilities of it his his imagining of what was possible was not curtailed or constrained by his own personal experience of the technology if he had had to deal with like an incredibly clunky word processing format he might not have had the same opinions as he did as he was writing the book and so um i think that there is something to be said for kind of holding back a little bit but there's also you know as in my other career you know i look at tech trends all the time so i look at people being early adopters and I look at the purchasing habits of early adopters and, and what they get out of it, but what they get out of it and what I get out of, of something are very different. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not into constant subscription services, for example, like I, I don't, you know, I don't even get my nails done regularly. So the idea that I would be subscribing to, to, to access, you know, to a tech thing is even like a, a whole other bridge to, to cross.
1: God, yeah. I'm talking about nails. I I, I cut my nails because I play the piano. <laughs> yeah, no. So, like, yeah. <laughs> the nail thing was never going to happen.
2: <laughs> no, exactly. Like, the idea, like, well, you could spend X amount of dollars for this app that gets you thus and such. And it's like, well, you know, I don't even do – there are so many things that I just opt out of naturally. Like, I think it's also just introversion, right? It's also just a, a species of, of introversion. Um, but also, I mean, so – uh, in terms of like not having certain things, like one, uh, I think my dad was always sort of held back on things. We had a Betamax VCR for, lo- if, you know, into the time that DVDs were coming out. We didn't get a DVD player until my dad won one at a work party, um, and uh, and even and then it was like we sort of had to cross over. Um, but the other thing was that he his job was he was a sales rep for um, for companies like Sony and Panasonic and and others that made closed circuit television surveillance equipment so our house was full of dummy surveillance equipment or or surveillance equipment that wasn't in use and so i had a real close view of how that technology worked and and what the trends were in that technology and what the what the the what what people were looking for out of it and so when i Hear about stuff like a Google Home or or an Echo or a, an Alexa or whatever you know whatever it is this month or whatever it is this season you know my immediate thought is oh okay so so a thing a listening device planted planted squarely in your home that you rely on increasingly for for your day to day life a thing that can narc on you what a great idea
1: <laughs> so. Like on this podcast we do talk a lot about cliches about stereotypes about our like most uh the, the tropes that we find most annoying so do you have any i mean well, i was going to say like since we were on the subject of identity um and and, and particularly kind of like we're talking about surveillance and, and people's um images online like do you have any um kind of like really pet peeves about tropes that continually crop up in sci-fi that you'd like to see retired
2: well one thing that we talked about uh we had a long conversation about this uh in the orphan black sort of pseudo writers room in our group chat um was the idea that um government surveillance works perfectly and looks really shiny and new and and smooth and beautiful um you know if you watch your average like cbs cop show or your average um sort of science fiction movie about the nsa or 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 you know a a thing with the fbi or or whatever if you look at something like minority report or or what have you the idea you know or if you look at like agents of shield or something like there there's a science fictional idea that that government technology is easy to use works perfectly and is beautiful and that is not the case <laughs> um the the missile scare that happened in hawaii for example where where the people of hawaii thought that they were the victims of a nuclear attack because of a false alarm that went out that false alarm went out because the interface that was used during the the drill it is so old and so janky and so decrepit and so uh so basic that it was an easy mistake to make from the interface design perspective from the from the user interface perspective and that is the case more often than not with government systems like i think that people don't understand that all of those you know technologies go out to tender they go out for rfps and the winning rfp is the thing that promises the most for the least money you know and and that's what budget cuts do and that's for all governments that's not the US that's not Canada that's not Britain it's not Australia it's it's not China it's it's everywhere and and it's the same in corporate life and actually so this idea that like that that a that a system that you would be working with um would work perfectly hundred percent of the time and be smooth and easy to use and also gorgeous, is is a lie. And it's one of the things that I really wish would get retired, or I really wish that the opposite would get experimented with as a as as a fictional trope, uh, because it's so it's the the opposite is so much more the case and has a lot more storytelling potential as far as I'm concerned.
0: One that always gets me is the whole zooming in. Oh, on yeah. – images and you're like so okay you you zoom in and it's all pixelated but then somehow your computer magically just makes it super high res yeah from not having those pixels already it just makes it up like how does that work
2: well yeah what's funny is that like enhance that sort of like you know the bat the 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 blade runner enhance function um is something that you know, is something I've I've heard lots of people who work in, in audiovisual technologies sort of rail against for a very long time. And what's funny is that there are um, developers working on in photo enhancing technologies now that want to make that real, but they need they're using machine learning to do it, and it's really about a machine learn um, a machine learning al- algorithm predicting what else is in the photo based on other information. And and it's not about like what the camera actually saw, it's what is predictable based on the other c- context clues in the image, and 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 it's it's almost sort of like looking into the dream of what the image is, not necessarily what's actually there.
0: Yeah. So a lot of questions about whether or not that would be admissible evidence <laughs> yeah. or reliable yes. in any sense, in any <laughs>
2: in any way, shape, or form.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the other thing for me is a lot of things about machine learning and algorithms and all this kind of thing is that a lot of sci-fi doesn't look at the fact that your data is only as good as what you put in. right? And, you know, a lot of those studies go go on about how if you put racist information into the algorithm, what you're going to get out is like racist behavior of, you know, the machines. And that's something I, I don't really think I've seen much of in sci-fi, which I think would be a nice you know thing to explore
2: yeah i think that i think a lot more people are are becoming aware of that fact that sort of garbage in garbage out counts for for these systems as well and we had this sort of vision and i was one of these people i believed that the technology could in theory be neutral and 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 then every study proved me wrong like every study sort of proved that uh, that idea wrong that like the biases of the creator are replicated in the creation And that's something that has, you know, that science fictionally we've talked about a lot in terms of, you know, a story like Frankenstein or a story about creating artificial intelligence that what we create, you know, we, we are flawed. And when we create in our own image, we, we create flawed things. And, and that's the problem. You know, we are, we are not designing technology that is better than us. We're designing technology that, that is meant to replace or disintermediate human beings so that we don't have to pay for human beings and it's doing a worse job
1: yes what a positive note <laughs> <laughs> just picking up on cuz we've been talking about um clichés and we've been talking about things that we kind of are tired of seeing in um in the genre since we've been talking about orphan black and um, we've been talking about working within a pre-existing franchise, a pre-existing world um do you find it it's harder to avoid cliches when you're working in a structure that you know and a world that's already been established? I mean because we're if we're we're writers we we're kind of becoming aware of cliches, becoming aware of stereotypes and we want to set out you know to create a world where we can kind of avoid these things happening but obviously when you've got pre-existing material that you have to work with i mean um is it harder to avoid cliches do you have to feel like you have to be aware of them more
2: um there was there are a couple of things like there there are a couple of answers to that question like one is that um you want to avoid cliches generally and there's also like at the level of prose you want to you know you sort of want to eliminate as many cliches as possible at the prosaic level like in the writing you know you you never want to have the dark and stormy night you know stuff like that um but uh in terms of create like working with someone else's characters there is a point at which to be in character you have to kind of be cliche for that character you have to sort of lean in to the moments where they are most themselves where they become almost a parody of themselves you know you you have to lean into um to moments where you know for example cosima goes on a digression about science or where you know where allison is talking about you know the other moms in her neighborhood or, or something like that um you have to kind of lean into those moments and, and take advantage of them to sort of prove that you've done your homework and prove that, you know, these characters are still the same people that you know and love. Um, so there's there's a little bit where the cliche can almost benefit you, but you can't use it too much. You can't go overboard with it. And it won't move the story along. You can only do it in a way that moves the story, right? And and so you want to be aware of of moments that where you might be being, you know, a little bit overboard, or, or where you might be taking too much license. So so there there were you know we I'm trying to think of, of an example. Um, so okay, one of my favorite moments in my chapter, which is uh, chapter five of Orphan Black, the next chapter. There's um there's a moment where there's an interloper, um, in in the midst of the clones and this interloper is another clone she's an undiscovered american clone which i started calling the americlones but the the interloper then does a very orphan black thing and she dresses like one of the the sisters she dresses like cosima and she uses that to infiltrate cosima's home and she and sarah have a conversation where she is pretending to be cosima and sarah is pretending to go along with it and the conversation that they have sort of like then uses a bunch of cliches about the sisters to prove that she isn't who she's saying who she is. But it's something that only someone – it's something that only someone who knew and loved these characters would understand. And it's a thing that I got asked about actually recently. Um, that someone asked me about with regard to that chapter is like, well, how does Sarah know that this person is lying, and and how like how does how did she sort of get out of that moment? And it's and it was about like whether or not these women are being in character.
1: That's really interesting. Like to think that you can use cliches um, to enhance kind of character development particularly for people who are familiar with those characters um and that actually cliche becomes really important then i mean I i feel like it's become a dirty word and i understand why it is a dirty word because it's it you know it can get very tiresome but then cliches are cliches because they're true as well
2: you know i think of them almost as like tropes uh there are certain tropes that work There are certain, you know, whether, whether you're thinking about TV tropes or, or like, okay, so if you go to AO3, if you go to Archive of Our Own, you look at a bunch of fan fiction, you're going to find like content tags that are tropes, right? And, and those are incredibly well-targeted tags that tell people so much about what the story is going to contain without giving anything away necessarily, um, in terms of the minor gestures of the story, but they are micro-targeted to their audience in a way that that would make Facebook jealous, and a, and in a way that makes actually that would make Amazon more importantly jealous. Uh, they wish that they had that kind of of micro-tagging in terms of 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 you know getting at an audience and and so when i think about you know the stuff that we take advantage of in orphan black like a clone dressing is another clone is something that happened multiple times on the show and that you don't want to do too often because then it sort of cheapens it but you know if it's orphan black it ha- it's gonna happen right if if you're orphan black then you're gonna have clones dressing as other clones period the end you know you're gonna have a moment where sarah loses her cool you know, you're going to have a moment where where Kasima sort of goes off on this digression, and uh, in terms of science, and she, you know, she texts the tech out of the thing, right? That's going to happen because it's Orphan Black. And it was a real joy to to do those moments. It, it was a real joy to sort of enter that tradition. And that's how I approached it was like I was entering a tradition in which these things happened within the story. and And it was less about cliche and more about the sisters being who they are to each other and never really compromising their love for each other or the the battles that they had fought and won uh never really trying to undo any of the the character growth that they had already been through in the show and really only adding to the to the growth that they were that they were sort of undergoing as as human beings and as a family.
0: Yeah, I I love um how just the idea that you know Sarah will like lose her shit at some point because yeah, Sarah <laughs> will lose her shit. <laughs> like Yeah. (laughs) Orphan Black, I just loved because they were all such interesting, varied female characters, but they were all so believable and real for me. And believably, I guess, you know, the whole nature nurture thing and and seeing that they were the same person, but they were also completely different people. And that was really interesting.
2: Oh, I think that that's something that is so true about families in general, right? That when you get a big family together, you're going to see the corners of them, right? You're going to see, like, how how different they are to each other, but – you know, if you spend enough time with them, you're going to see the similarities as well. You're going to really notice, like, after a while, after you spend enough time with these people, you're going to notice that, like, okay, certain things are the same. And it's not just the looks. It's 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 values. It's the same inside joke. It's, it's something like that. There's something that unites people um, over, you know, sometimes over great distances or great you know, over time or, or what have you. Like I worked in a joke and in, in that initial chapter and in, in chapter five about like the patchy bit of skin between their eyebrows, because there's a, there's an episode very early on in the show where Allison says something like, do you get that weird dry skin between your eyebrows? And it's, it's just something that had always stuck with me as a really wonderful line in terms of how these women related to each other that I had to put it in and, and, and it was, it's just there. It's just a, it's a, it's a little thing that like, even when you're in a fight with a family member, or even when you're like, really, when you are not getting along or when you're very different people, there are moments that you find sort of a or you find uh, commonality or, or something like that that can really unite you in those tense moments. And I think that the show was really good about, about um, sort of bringing that, forward and and it really becomes a show about a family uh and we and i really wanted to preserve that there were a lot of qualities about the show that i i really wanted to preserve because they were often things that the show that that show did that orphan black did that you know other television was not doing at the time like for example um like allison and donnie have a really sex positive relationship for example, like they have a very sexy yep. relationship despite, you know, being in suburbia, raising two kids, like, you know, being very, otherwise be very boring people aside from the cloning and the, you know, the dead people in their garage. And, and so they, you know, I really wanted to preserve that. And there's a moment in which, in which I do. <laughs> and, and so and ditto uh like i think it is in chapter five in chapter five i open it with uh talking about delphine buying underwear that she knows cosima will like right and very rarely do you get that on on tv in any country even canada and and so um i wanted to preserve those aspects of their relationship and and without making it exploitive or 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 too titillating or or what have you um so i there were things that that the show was already doing that i just wanted to keep doing really
0: it does give women um far more to do than a lot of tv i've seen has done it was really refreshing for me when i watched that to see so many women you know how you kind of get a lot of shows will have like the smart one or the rebel one or, you know, the uptight one or whatever, but this one had all of them and, yeah. you know, women were allowed to be any of these stereotypes that you could possibly imagine. We were allowed to be absolutely anything we wanted to be in this show.
2: Yeah. And, and sometimes within the same role, right? I mean, I think that, you know, Alison is very uptight, but she is so clever. She is so clever. And can and can do anything at a moment's notice. Uh, she's so capable, um, and and Sarah is so rebellious, but also so conservative in some of her leanings, right? Like it is so you know she's she she's rebellious mostly because she wants her own way, and 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 stuff. So there are there the show like sort of left room in these characters for contradiction and and for flaws and really built a lot of storytelling potential into those flaws and and gave it, you know, gave it gave them sort of room to breathe. And and that's what I really enjoyed. And and I think that there's a thing, you know, where these women got to look at each other and this becomes something in something very important in the next in in the next chapter in the the story that we're telling about looking at the different directions that all of these women went in their lives, that they they are in theory the same person, but the directions that they chose in life are so different. You know, not just sort of their circumstances, you know, what they did with their circumstances are very different. And I think as women, you know, there's a lot of pressure to sort of choose a life direction really early. And and in so doing, choose that as an identity. Like, oh I'm this. Oh, I'm a I'm a professional. I'm a mom. I'm a I'm a stay at home mom. I'm a working mom. I'm a I'm not a mom. I'm you know, or I'm, you know, I'm an academic and that's all I am, or I'm an artist, or I'm a you know, whatever. And and that's just not how people live their lives anymore. Not just because we have longer lifespans than our ancestors did, although that demographically is changing um but but because you know that's not how the economy works any longer you have to put on multiple identities in order to survive and i think that orphan black was very real about that in a metaphorical kind of way that you do have to put on different costumes you do have to be multiple people at the same time in order to just get by
0: yeah, I feel like that every day. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, exactly, right? I mean, you wear so many hats. Like, And I think that's the thing that it was very honest about in terms of women's experiences. There were a lot of things that it was honest about. But but the wearing of many hats, like as a metaphor for like the everyday experience of women or, or wi- people who identify as women, there are already so many identities that you have to put on. There are already so many hats you have to wear and roles you have to play, the fact that, you know, for these clones, they all look alike. But but when you live in a society that treats women the same, no matter – that treats women as sort of a commodity anyway, you know, it really got to literalize that commodification and literalize that experience of being treated as sort of a, a product. And, um, you know, it really dug into that, I thought. And it was – that's, you know, one of the reasons that I enjoyed it so much.
1: Um, So speaking like a little about um, male characters uh, in this context, um, the series made a point of having, you know, often having male characters disenfranchised uh, to comment on how women are usually disenfranchised Mm -hmm. in in popular television. Um, How do you hope to present men in the audio serial? Um, Do you approach these characters differently than how you might otherwise, you know, in, in other writing work?
2: Um, I tend to really enjoy writing men. Uh, I really, for a long time, I wrote male. I, I think I wrote male characters better than I wrote female characters. I was better at at uh, writing them for a long time, and now I think I'm kind of about equal. I think my, uh, it, I had to kind of level up before I could write women effectively for other people. Uh, it took a lot of training, I guess, is how I would put it. Um, men when i was starting out men were just easier for for some reason and and i'm sure people have the exact opposite experience or or what have you um and and so for this we really thought about um not just who the good guys are but what does it mean to be a good guy you know not not just a nice guy you know tm uh but you know who what does it mean to be a good guy who is a good is you know why is Donnie a good guy you know and and because he's had a huge arc within the story right and and has had has really come through on the other side of it to be a truly supportive partner in a way that he that he was not at the beginning of the show and how do we continue that relationship and you know with art you know how do we how do we let this guy grow in his relationship to these women based on the fact that he lost someone who was so important to him uh you know at the at the start of the story and what does it mean to be an ally um in that kind of story without being sort of a knight in shining armor do we leave room for these men to be vulnerable too and i think that's you know i think that's one of the challenges that i wish television would sort of you know, go on. I wish that that's one of the challenges that they would take. You know, like we've we've had an entire decade of of antiheroes, great antiheroes. You know, Walter White, Don Draper, basically every man that's been on an AMC show. Um, we've had a great decade of, of wonderful, well written, well wrought uh, antiheroes on television, but we have far fewer like truly vulnerable men. Like the, and I think that we're getting better about i think television is getting better about that um you have a real so you have like the caricatures of that on a show like mind hunter where you know where holden is a person dealing with a with the the revelation of his mental illness and and where tench is sort of trying to hold up this this possibly outdated idea of masculinity and not having room for his own vulnerability within it and not leaving room for vulnerability within, for his, in his partner and, and stuff. So it's, you're getting like, I think television is sort of digging in to those things now, but you know, it's a, it's a thing that I wish we saw more of for sure.
0: It was interesting when you brought up Donnie, because I, I loved that Donnie became a really quite strong character from someone who was at first you thought oh it's kind of buying into the toxic masculinity idea he's not the the stud that he should be he isn't as strong as a man should be but then actually it kind of flips that on its head and it was a really interesting portrayal of a genuinely interesting and strong and and capable Male character who grew throughout the series, and for someone who was kind of set up as, you know, that the the kind of a patsy, the the butt of the joke, became quite a nuanced character, and I I really loved Orphan Black for doing that.
2: Well, yeah, I think donnie is so interesting because for me, all of the clones come from different shows. Like Orphan Black is the show where there's for where almost like each clone has her own genre, right? Uh, and Allison is clearly on a, a sitcom set in suburbia. Allison is in a th- is in a three camera sitcom where she is the smoking hot wife, and her husband is this is this doughy guy uh, who is always married to a smoking hot wife on a on a sitcom, right? Like she's this gorgeous lady, and he's Jim Belushi. Yep. You know, like she like that's the show that she's on. And her show was running quite well until she discovered that she was a clone. She was a very successful sitcom mom until she discovered that she was a clone, right? And in that way, the show is sort of almost about the nature of television itself. Uh, It's almost this sort of metafictional commentary because, you know, Sarah was on this, this show about being a grifter and and cosima was already kind of on a science fiction show in a in a way and helena was on this like action show about conspiracies and secret societies and 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 whatever and they were all on their sort of individual shows until they got sort of sandwiched in to this one show that was all those things at the same time and and so for a character like donnie he starts out in a very cliched place you know speaking of cliches he starts out in a really cliched place he is that that husband on that sitcom, he's a comic foil. He's the guy who's constantly screwing up while his, his rock star wife saves the day, like episode to episode to episode. That's what happens. And then he starts becoming an agent in his own life and not being satisfied with that lot for himself.
1: So Orphan Black has touched on issues of identity, motherhood, um, equality, female autonomy, <laughs> Um reproductive rights, the ethics of scientific research, um, and quite a lot more. So what has the franchise yet to touch on that you would really, really love to look at um, or that additionally you'd like to explore in your own work?
2: I think it would be really interesting if the show, like, this is a very biased answer, but I think it would be very, really interesting now for the show to sort of go into its own Canadianness. ness um at a time when um you know it's a bbc america show and it's shot in canada and it's written by canadians and performed by canadians and and it's hugely popular in america and and so it's and it's so it's a big co-production and it takes place in this sort of weird liminal state where canadians are aware torontonians are aware that it's in toronto There are references to Toronto. It shows Canadian money uh, when they show cash being exchanged. It's Canadian money, Um, things like that. But it does, you know, Toronto plays everything. Right, Toronto has been New York. It's been Boston. It's been, uh, it's it's been Gotham City. It's been, um, it's been city other cities in various comic book movies. It's been fictional places. So I would really like the show to sort of dig into its own Canadianness and sort of dig into what that means. And I think that we do that in the next chapter i think we like you know we we spent a lot of time talking about um sort of what was legal in canada and what wasn't and and how things you know would unfold how how certain things would unfold uh logistically and like even like how far away certain locations were from each other and and how long uh how long it would take to to get to certain places like it was it was pretty i want to say pretty deeply researched um i'm sure that there's there are things that we missed and or did wrong or just flat out did wrong but um but we we really tried to be true to the location and i think that i would like in a show about identity i would really like the that exploration to talk about like you know the about a country in which the joke is as canadian as possible under the circumstances and and so i think that um to explore a place that has that is that tries very hard to include to be inclusive while making serious mistakes in doing so um at the same time i think that that would be really interesting especially now i think a lot of people are so worn out of american and british news that they would love <laughs> a show set somewhere else yeah yeah yeah, um, I'm going to cling
0: on to that as being the reason I like Degrassi and not just because I like <laughs> s- silly television. <laughs> but hey, Degrassi did talk about how uh, how it, how the Canadians were dealing with taking in refugees um, mm-hmm. from yeah, Syria yeah, and so yeah, on. Exactly. So yeah. yeah, yeah, why not?
2: It's it's one of the things that I was excited to. I was really excited to, uh, to write about places that I had been. I was really excited about uh, to, and to talk about how much I love Toronto because I really love it, living here. And and so I was happy to include lots and lots of Toronto in jokes um, as sort of little Easter eggs within, within my work.
0: It's been awesome having you on, Madeline. But before you go, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your book, Company Town or anything else that you've been working on?
2: I would say uh, my latest novel is Company Town, which is a murder mystery set on an oil rig 500 kilometers northeast of Newfoundland, and it uh, it takes place in a near-future dystopian environment uh, involving a serial killer from the future and, um, and a, and a v- deeply gothic family that buys an entire city. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> That sounds
1: very interesting. I really like the family that buys an entire city. That's amazing.
2: Yeah. No, they're they're a fun bunch. They're a fun bunch. <laughs> Thank you. So much for joining us, and
1: thank you so much for joining us, Madeline. It's been amazing. I think we've touched on enormous amounts uh, tonight, and I think like it's safe to say that Orphan Black is a really awesome show. And if you haven't watched it, then and, and haven't listened to um the new serial, then um get on that right away.
0: Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.